Did anybody uh, study up on their national monuments this week? Really? (laughs) Perfect. Well, you'll have no problem then, as I test you, on our nation's most famous monuments and memorials. I will. I will start off easy, and they will get more difficult. Okay. Only Aaron can answer. I'm just kidding. I'm just uh, you When you think you know, you can just shout it out, okay? First one's tricky. I'm just kidding. It's easy. Oh, no, I'm talking about the one back here. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, no, that's, that's the Statue of Liberty. Do you guys know where it came from? Yeah. Oh, good job. Good job. You know it wasn't always green, right? It's copper. Yeah, tarnished. You guys know when it was dedicated? Before or after Chuck? That's the question. No, it was way before Chuck. 1886. 100 years after the start of the country. Sorry, 110 years. Um, it was declared a monument, though, later. Do you guys any clue? It was, it was, it was built in 1886, dedicated in 86, but it didn't become a national monument until... Okay. After. <laughs> 1924. Okay. Yeah. Lincoln Memorial. That's right. Do you guys know when it was dedicated? Any guesses? (laughs) You can't just say after someone was born or something happened. Give me a year. Just give me, just someone yell out a year. 1922. It was actually pretty close. That's pretty good. Okay, here we go. Yeah, yeah. Do you guys know how tall it is? 555 feet. It is by law the tallest building that's ever allowed to be in the Capitol. Do you guys know that? No building can be taller. Any guesses when it was dedicated? Okay, 1885. I'm just going to tell you from here on out. You guys obviously don't know. Yeah. Can you believe I left all this gravel down here? It's just crazy. Do you guys know who the presidents are that are up there? Yeah. 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 I think it, Roosevelt. Did anybody say Roosevelt? Okay. Yeah. Okay. You guys got them all. I'm never going to ask. It was dedicated in 1927. Okay. Okay. You guys know what this one is? I don't think I heard the right answer. Ha! Yes! It was a trick question. It is in St. Louis. It is called the St. Louis Arc, colloquially. But it's actually the Gateway Arch. Okay? 630 feet tall. It is the tallest man-made arch in the world. And it's the tallest man-made monument in the U.S. I don't know why anybody would want to build a taller arch, but there it is. Uh, it was dedicated in 1965. Okay, here's another one for you. Yeah, that's the 9-11 memorial. And that opened officially on 9-11-2011, 10 years after 9-11. Okay, now this one's going to be a little trickier. Dang. You guys are good. Yeah, it's the USS Arizona Memorial in Pearl Harbor. 
dedicated in 1962. Okay, here's another one for you. Wow, that was fast. That... Did you recently take a trip to Washington, D.C. or something? Okay, I see you. Okay. Well, Carol, since you know everything, what do you think about this one? Any guesses? It is. It is not Arlington. It is not the Washington Monument. Again, I'm not tricking you, but it is an obelisk. Yes, you can come here, Brittany. You can come here and get closer and look. If you like. Come here. You can stand right here and look. Does that help? Yeah. It has a hat. I'll tell you that. You know what, you know what it is? No. <laughs> it's the Bunker Hill Monument. Brittany told me that when she... She is still too shy to say that. It is in uh, Bunker Hill. I think it's in Massachusetts. It was a battle with uh, in the Revolutionary War. Um, okay, here's the last one. Or not the last one, second last one here. Oh, oh, here we go. Okay. Mm, Carol, you know, once again. <laughs> yes! It is a world war. Oh, you're reading. Yes. <laughs> Here, I blur the words out. <laughs> it's the technically called the Liberty Memorial. It's in Kansas City, Missouri. Dedicated in 1926. The Bunker Hill Memorial was dedicated in 1843. And the Martin Luther King Jr. one was in 2011. Okay, last one here. Last one here. What? Mm, no. Uh, it is used to be called the Custer Memorial, but they changed it to Little Bighorn National Monument in 1991. So that was George George Washington, or not George Washington, George Bush. <laughs> George Washington wasn't around 1991. But yeah, this is the Little Bighorn National Monument. It used to be named after Custer. Don, I would give. I'll give you. Like three quarters credit for that one. Maybe 90% actually. Yeah, I mean, you essentially got it right. So memorials, memorials are important because they remind us, of, remind us of things in the past. And without them, some really important people, events, or ideas would be lost, and especially the lessons that they teach us. And while Christianity doesn't have a giant statue... I'm talking about, like, something that God, like, established. I mean, obviously people have, like, carved statues and built buildings and things. But God didn't establish any giant statues or big granite buildings. Or he didn't, like, carve the face of Jesus in a mountain for everybody to go and look at, right? But there is a memorial that ties us back to Jesus. And that memorial is communion. All right, so if you've been here for at least one month... You have seen us take communion at church, and it's when we drink grape juice and we eat uh, usually a little piece of cracker or bread together. And communion is something that is, I think, extremely familiar to most of us. 
And just like last week, the Bible is super familiar to most of us. And we learned how maybe because it's commonplace, we, it loses its sacred feeling after a while. I think the same thing can happen with communion. And as a fun fact, and as a proof to that point, I did the math, and I figured out how many communions I've taken in my life, roughly. It's around 200, all right? Now, that's 200 times more communions than Jesus ever took. I'm just, he only took one in the Last Supper. We'll get there, okay? But it's not that funny, apparently. Okay? <laughs> but I've taken around 200 communions, which is about once a month for, since I got baptized or so. And I think that's a conservative number with about right. And so over the years, I have had various different communion experiences. And I've felt differently about communion at different times in my life. And I've understood communion differently. And as I've grown and matured in my faith, communion has changed with me. My understanding of it and my feeling towards it. I'm sure many of you guys are in the same boats as I am. Boat as I am. And so today... Like with the last two messages in this series, we're going to be trying to deepen our understanding of communion and appreciate communion. That way we can walk away with this feeling of sacredness that communion should have. So in order, in order to kind of get a good feeling and understanding of communion, we need to go all the way back to its origins where it started. And we will work our way back to where we are today with communion. So that story actually starts near the beginning of the Bible in Exodus. You can go ahead and open up the Exodus chapter 12 with me. And so the backstory of Exodus chapter 12 is that the Israelite people, God's people, are enslaved in Egypt. They've been there for 430 years. And God sent Moses to try to compel Pharaoh to let the people go out of slavery. But uh, Pharaoh, out of the stubbornness of his heart, did not want to let him go. Now, Moses asked nicely a couple times, and then God's like, okay, I'm going to apply some pressure here. And so he starts sending plagues. Nine different times, with nine different plagues, God pushes Pharaoh to let the people go, and he says no every single time. And so Pharaoh's heart gets more and more hard towards the Israelites, and he increases his oppression on them and increases their workload. And so this time, on the tenth plague, God is going to bring about the hardest judgment, the strongest force he can to make... Pharaoh give up his people. And so that's where we start in Exodus chapter 12, is in the midst of this here, in the midst of these plagues. And God is giving Moses instructions to go and tell the Israelites that they need to find a one-year-old lamb without defect, a male lamb, and then they're supposed to take this lamb and kill it at twilight. And they're going to eat it, and they are going to put its blood on the doorposts of their home. And then God is going to come over Egypt and kill the firstborn males without this. And that's kind of where we are in this story. So let's go look ahead and look at verse 7. Moreover, they shall take the blood of this lamb and put it on their two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat. And that's not like a grain. That is the top post of their doorway is a lintel. Okay. I grew up a long time in the church and didn't know that for a while, so I just want to make sure we're all on the same page where the lentil is. So they shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. So if you're ever looking for justification for barbecuing in the Bible, here it is. 
He goes on to say, do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you should eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and with your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both of man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. The blood of this lamb shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you. And I will strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you. And you shall celebrate it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. As a long-lasting practice. So this here is the first Passover. And after this night, God comes and he strikes down all the firstborn of Egypt. And Pharaoh finally concedes. He, he finally says, get out of here. I don't want anything to do with you people. And you can have all of our gold and here are some animals. And it's just this amazing thing that it says that the nation of Israel plundered Egypt. They didn't even have to list a, list a sword to do it. It's just God moved in this amazing way. Pharaoh could no longer bear the power of God. And, and now something to notice here in this passage is that it's important that God tells Moses that this Passover starts here, but it doesn't end here. It is supposed to be a memorial to all generations because God wants the Israelites to remember what happened that night in Egypt. And that's exactly what Israel did. They faithfully practiced this Passover meal in celebration year after year. And this memorial went unchanged for 1,400 years until the time of Jesus. Now, there are some important motifs in this story, some kind of general themes that are important for us to keep in our minds as we're moving forward. So these are kind of the general themes of Passover. One, as we've already looked at, it's a memorial that is supposed to be carried on from generation to generation. And then there's also this theme of liberation from Passover. It's that God's people are freed from an oppressive power. In this case, it's Pharaoh in Egypt. Then there's this idea of a sacrifice of a perfect lamb. And that its blood covers the people. That it, it saves them from judgment. It saves their lives. And then there's also this communal aspect that this practice is meant to take place with the whole assembly, with all of God's people, and it's supposed to be done intentionally and with a purpose. What we just read doesn't incorporate all the practices of the Passover, so this isn't like a lesson on Passover, but it's given us enough to have the foundation that we need to go and understand communion. So like I said, from this point in Exodus... Around 1,400 years pass until we get to Jesus. And during that time, God does not add to Passover. He does not take away from it. He does not change it in any way, and it is faithfully kept every single year. And then we get to Jesus. And sometimes people miss this fact, but Jesus was a Jew. And so he grew up keeping Passover, just like everybody else. Except for one time in his life. 
And it was the last Passover he would ever take. And so he's with his disciples, and they're in the city of Jerusalem. You guys can go ahead and open to Luke chapter 22, and we're going to read this. So he's, he's in Jerusalem. It's right before the Passover. He's with his disciples. And they're going to eat this meal together. They're going to, and they've probably done this for a few years at least now. What his disciples didn't know is that this Passover was going to be completely different from any other Passover they've had in their life. So in Luke chapter 22, we're going to kind of zoom in on this story and and see what Jesus says to his disciples, starting in verse 7. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. This is calling back to what we just read in Exodus. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, Where you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave to them, saying, This is my blood which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after it was eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. So what we just read about here is the start of something new. Right? So Jesus is making a new covenant. He is making a new memorial. One that is built on Passover. One that is built on the established practice of Passover. But the disciples didn't really fully understand what Jesus was talking about at this point, right? So Jesus says, hey, my, this, is my, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. This cup represents the blood that I have spilled for you. And I want you when, you, when you eat this bread and drink this cup, I want you to remember me, right? And they're probably thinking in their head, what are you talking about? You're talking about suffering. You're talking about your body being broken. And why do we need to remember you? You're sitting right here in front of us, right? Well, thankfully, we are not in this moment. We have the, the benefit of hindsight. We get to see the rest of the, the days that have unfolded and the rest of Scripture. And so we know that what Jesus is talking about here is his crucifixion. And that's the part that the disciples were missing to make sense of this, the, the sacrificial death of Jesus that would cover the sins of the world. That is what Jesus is talking about. He is talking about 
His blood being shed and his body being broken on the cross. And what Jesus did and what he was going to accomplish from this point on was a lot bigger. It's on a completely different scale than the Exodus. I mean, the Exodus was this amazing event. It took millions of people out of Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea into the wilderness. And remember those motifs of Passover, but now let's apply that to Jesus here in this night with communion, the first communion. We see that Jesus is still taking the idea of Passover and he wants this to be a reminder for his disciples, a memorial to remember what he has done and who he was. And in Egypt, there was this idea of liberation of, uh, from an oppressive power that was Pharaoh. But Jesus, through communion and his death, is going to liberate the entire world from sin and death. And instead of this one-year-old male lamb being sacrificed, Jesus is the sacrifice. He is that perfect lamb whose blood covers the people so that judgment passes over them. And instead of the people of Israel keeping this memorial, it is now everyone who calls Jesus Lord. So what God set up in Exodus was preparation for what Jesus is doing right here, right now, before his death. The former informs the latter. It is essential to understanding communion, is that you understand where it came from in Passover. But there is one really big difference between Passover and communion, and that is that Passover is only celebrated once a year, but communion can be celebrated anytime. So Paul talks about communion in 1 Corinthians 11. I have it here on the screen for us. And he gives us some additional information about how communion was practiced by early Christians. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So we can see here that Paul uh, doesn't put a timeline on communion but rather says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, which means there's no limit to the frequency. Another thing that we see here is that Paul is enforcing the sacredness of communion. You see, the Corinthian church, which this letter is written to, the Corinthian church was mistreating communion. There were the more wealthy and the richer people in the church who would use this opportunity where they were supposed to be remembering Jesus' sacrifice to be gluttons and get drunk. And by the time the uh, poorer people who had to work during the day would show up to this meal, there would be almost nothing left for them. There would be no seat for them, and the richer people had filled themselves, and they used this as a time for self-gratification. And Paul is saying that if you take communion in a way that defames Jesus and goes against who he was, 
you will be guilty of the blood and body of Jesus. Essentially what Paul is saying is that if you mess with communion, if you mess with the sacredness of communion, you are trampling Jesus' sacrifice underfoot. And if anything informs sacredness more than what Paul just said, I don't know what it would be. Right? Take it seriously what Paul is saying. That is a strong accusation. So in Paul's mind, communion is special. It needs to be protected and honored. And those things, as we've seen, are hallmarks of sacredness. So all of this, from Passover to the first Passover to the 1400 years, it was practiced to the first communion, to the faithful people who have passed it down for 2,000 years, to us, we are here today, right? We are together right now. And so that's nearly 3,500 years since the foundations of what we are about to do was established. That's old. Way older than Chuck. I know I make fun of you, Chuck, but you are just a blip in those 3,500 years. We all are. It is an ancient tradition. And no matter the time or the context, it is sacred because... It reminds us that we sit with Jesus. So when we take communion, we go right back to that night in Luke 22 that we just read about. And we go back to the days that followed. We go back to sitting at the table with Jesus. Imagine yourself there. Just close your eyes for a second. Imagine you're in this upper room, this guest room of this house. And there is Jesus sitting at this table and you're surrounded by the disciples. And he's telling you these things. And he says, what we're doing here is new. I'm going to die for you. All right. Just imagine being there. You can open your eyes. That is where we go when we take communion. We go back to that night. And it was a world-altering event. And how many of you guys get to be a part of a world-changing event on a regular basis, right? I know I certainly don't. But when we take communion, we are participating in that. We're participating in Jesus' death and resurrection. And as Paul says, when we take communion, what we're doing is proclaiming Jesus' death. It is a public sign to everybody there everybody here, that we are all in with Jesus' death, that we believe in it, and that we're a part of it. Another reason communion is sacred is because it gives us a moment to focus on our, on our liberation. See, communion is this perfect time to reflect and to be thankful. It's this perfect time to refresh our commitment to God and Jesus. It is a perfect time to remind ourselves that we have been freed from death and sin. Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. And because he died for us, we no longer are under the oppression of sin. But we are able to walk freely with God. Just like the Israelites walked out of Egypt. The last reason communion is sacred is because it is a reminder of a promise yet to be fulfilled. 
So both in Jesus' words in Luke 22 and in Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11, we see that there is a future element to communion. Jesus said that he will not partake of communion again. He will not drink of the vine. He will not eat this supper again until it is in God's kingdom with us. Paul says that when we take communion, we are proclaiming Jesus' death until, until he comes. Right? So every time we take communion, we're not looking just at the past, things that have happened. We're not just reflecting in the present, but we are looking to the future and reminding ourselves that there are still promises yet unfulfilled. And the next time that Jesus takes communion, it will not be a meal of remembrance, but it will be a meal of victory over death and sin. That the final time that communion is going to be taken is when Jesus has conquered death once and for all. It's, it's a really rich ritual. It's, it's deep. So as we kind of close out here today, I asked a few people, Judd, Kevin, Rick, John, if you guys can go ahead and start passing out the elements, you guys can come up now. And uh, everybody's going to get some bread, and some grape juice. And then we're going to take a minute to just reflect and think about the things that we have talked about today. And then we're going to take communion together. So just hold on to it, and then we'll take it together. You guys can go ahead and start passing. So sometimes traditions are just traditions, right? Think about things like Thanksgiving in your life. right? So if Thanksgiving disappeared it wouldn't mean much to us. I mean, sure, it has importance and meaning, but if communion disappeared, we would lose that connection all the way back to Jesus, right? Communion is this deep spiritual practice. It is something that ties us back to who Jesus was. It is a memorial that allows us to sit at the table with Jesus in common purpose. Communion is the glue that binds us together. It connects us to all the Christians who have come before us, and it's going to connect us to all the Christians who come after us. So as we pass this out, I just want you guys to be thinking about these things. We're just going to spend some time in silence as we pass out these elements, and then we'll take it together.
I think is good for us. To maybe just take in the moment a little bit. I know we're also sitting here maybe, oh, this is a little awkward as we're waiting for everything to get past. But I think it symbolizes the suffering of Jesus, what was on his mind that night. And in the days to follow us, he went to suffer on the cross. Was he not thinking of all the people he would save? And as I was hearing in the silence here, the bread sliding around this plate, I just think those pieces represent Jesus' broken body for us. So, if you would, take this bread with me. Let's remember what Jesus did. As we drink this together, let's remember the blood that he shed. As we sing our last song today, I want us to be truly thankful of what Jesus did for us.